Participation is a proper word for today. It is Christmas Eve, it's a day in which anticipation is in the air. Children have been counting down for weeks, anticipating a gift or two coming from the hand of their generous mothers and fathers. Parents are in anticipation, anticipating people coming home that they only get to see a couple of times a year maybe, anticipating giving that special gift to a child, also anticipating waking up at an unholy hour for the generosity to commence. A survey was taken in 2015 that concluded that 64% of Americans experience post-Christmas depression because after weeks and weeks of anticipation, the day just comes and goes. And once all the traditions and the movies and the nostalgia and the blitz of Christmas is over, people are left feeling rather empty. And that is because the old Dutch saying is true. The anticipation of a thing is often equal to or better than the thing itself. But in the case of the story of the Bible that our children's director, Kimberly Milner, just read, the anticipation is not the main event. The Bible anticipates the coming of a one-of-a-kind Messiah, a royal priest like the world has never seen, and his arrival is not inferior to the anticipation of him. In fact, he is the very one that the whole Bible has been waiting for, and he is the one that your soul has been waiting for. We're wrapping up our Christmas in the Psalms series this morning by looking at Psalm 110. If you claim to be a New Testament follower of Christ, it is imperative for you to understand Psalm 110. In fact, we might even say that it is the psalm that it is most important for you to understand, considering the fact that there is no other psalm quoted more in the New Testament. In fact, there is no other Old Testament passage quoted more in the New Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1 alone is referenced to or alluded to 24 different times in the New Testament scriptures. The psalm is written by King David, which is important because he is a man who has a special interest in the subject matter. His perspective is the one of a king who has been promised that a successor will sit on his throne forever. And so as David looks for this child to come from his line... He finds his Lord and his Master. I'm going to unpack this passage for us this morning and help us to understand what we're seeing in the text, draw our attention to a couple of points regarding anticipation and the coming Messiah. So we have two announcements in the passage this morning and then two points regarding anticipation. We see the announcement of the Messiah as king and we see the announcement of the Messiah as a priest. We will see how the scriptures and our souls have been crying out for him to come. The announcements come in verse 1 and in verse 4. In verse 1, David, in God's grace, and the rest of us as well, are let in on a heavenly conversation. It's not often that we get to say that. We get to hear the conversation of heaven. But that's what's happening in this psalm. The Lord, and if you're reading your Bible this morning, and and you're looking at it, and if you've ever read a Bible, and it's got the Lord in all capitals, capital L and capital O-R-D, then that is God's covenant name to his people, Yahweh. 
And so the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, not, not all capitalized, right? Just the L on that Lord. That is Adonai. So the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who's doing the talking here? We know that the Lord is Yahweh. This is God. But who is he speaking to? It is someone that David calls his Adonai. And Adonai is actually one of the most common titles for God in the Old Testament. God goes by his covenant name of Yahweh, but there are other names that he is known, uh, known by, like El Shaddai, God Almighty, for example. Well, here, uh, the word Adonai is used, the title Adonai is used, and that is often used to refer to God throughout the Old Testament scriptures. It means master, it means ruler, and so what's going on here? You have the Lord Yahweh speaking to the Lord Adonai. Who is this master and ruler? Who is the second Lord? Who is Adonai? In order for us to answer, we need the help of the New Testament, which so often quotes verse 1. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is talking to some religious men called Pharisees about the identity of the coming Messiah, and they purport themselves to be experts of the law. Really, they should understand these things. And he asks them, whose son is he? Talking about the Messiah. And they say, the son of David. And he says, well, then why does David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, call his son his Lord? He said to them, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Psalm 110, verse 1. You see his point. How is the son of David also the Lord of David? In Mark 12, Jesus is in the temple. He teaches the same thing. And in this instance, the people understand what he's saying. And Mark says that the great throng heard him gladly. And then in Luke 20, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1 again. And he says, David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? What Jesus was showing the Pharisees and the scribes and the people in the temple is that the scriptures reveal David's son, the Messiah, to be greater than David, superior to David. So great is this Messiah that David recognizes him to be Adonai, meaning he recognizes him to be God. Psalm 110 verse 1 is Yahweh, God the Father, speaking to the Christ, God the Son. The Lord speaking to the Lord. This is only more confirmed, but as you continue to read the New Testament, you have Peter in Acts 2 standing up at Pentecost after the Spirit of God has filled the church. He lifts his voice, he preaches, and he argues that David could not be talking about himself in Psalm 110 because David did not rise again. And David did not ascend to the right hand of God. Peter says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
The second Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1 is Jesus Christ. He is the one that in Ephesians 1.20, the Apostle Paul says, is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. He is the one that the author of Hebrews says is seated at the right hand of God at the throne of the majesty in heaven. The words of Paul, the author of Hebrews, come alongside the teachings of Jesus and the teaching of Peter to confirm it's the Son of God at the right hand of Yahweh in the 110th Psalm. And what it reveals to us is that Christ will remain seated at the right hand of the Father, or in session, if you want to use a theological term. He's going to be seated, he's going to be in session until, as verse 1 says, he makes his enemies his footstool. Now, when you think of a footstool, I don't want you to think about what many of you are going to do today and tomorrow after you eat the Christmas ham. And you sit back and you throw your feet up on the ottoman and, and pass out while the NFL's on TV, right? Or while the Christmas story's on TV or whatever it is you're going to have on. I don't want you to think of that. This is not a picture of somebody throwing their feet up on an ottoman in relaxation. This is a picture of a mighty king conquering and taking his foot and putting it on the neck of the enemy, demanding surrender. And this is what will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Today we celebrate his first coming, but we also look forward to his second coming. And when the Lord Jesus returns from the right hand of God, everyone who has not surrendered to him in love will surrender to him in defeat and in judgment. This image of the Messiah King carries on in verses 2 and 3. We see a picture of him ruling in the midst of his enemies, but we also see a picture of his holy army who loves him. In verse 1, it's an explanation of what Jesus is going to do when he returns. In verses 2 and 3, we get an explanation of what Jesus is doing until then. Yahweh sends forth from Zion, meaning his dwelling place, the mighty scepter of Adonai. Meaning the Father sends forth His Son Jesus in authority to rule, and Jesus does this in the midst of His enemies. This picture of the Messiah's scepter is one of authority. The King's scepter is His symbol of power. It's not the only time we see this in the Psalms. In Psalm 2, the nations are raging. They're conspiring against God. And God mocks them. He brushes aside their conspiracies, and he puts his king on Zion, his holy hill. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he promises his king, who is his son, will have the nations. He will rule the nations with a rod, with a scepter of iron. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. I have brought you forth is what that means. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus will have dominion. And Jesus has dominion now. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning. And as he does this, he's really a picture of what Adam was supposed to be before the fall. Adam was the first man that God created. 
And when he created them, the world was good. And he put him in the garden and he said to them, in Genesis 1 verse 28, he says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam failed in that, but Jesus is perfect and Jesus is ruling now and he does this in the midst of his enemies. Right now, as we speak. Today, all around the world, there's Christmas Eve services like this going on. And in those services, there will be people who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they turn away from their sins, they repent, and they're going to put their trust in Jesus and they're going to become Christians. It might happen in this very room this morning. I pray that it does. He is capturing souls with the power of the gospel message. Heart by heart, he is bringing them into his kingdom and he is taking them from being slaves to sin to being citizens of heaven. And he's doing this saving work in the world in the midst of those conspiring nations who hate him and oppose him and who seek to write him out of their societies. But they can't stop the gospel. The Lord's authority goes out from his dwelling place, out from Zion, and the saving arm of the Messiah will redeem a multitude from every nation. And Satan can't stop it either. He cannot stop the gospel from reaching every shore and saving a myriad of saints. And those saints stand in contrast to the Lord's enemies. Instead of opposing God, the redeemed wear brilliant garments that reflect the holiness of the King. These are the people who have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. These are those who have ended their war with God and they have joined the Messiah's holy army. Having been made pure from within, they are able and they are eager to offer themselves as free will offerings to King Jesus on the day when he returns. This is what verse 3 is speaking of. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And on that day, the night of this world will be over, and the people of God will be brought forth as a bride adorned for her husband in his youth. They will be like the glistening dew of the morning, signifying that the old is gone and behold the new has come. And even now, the born again church of Christ is a joy to the Messiah King and a preview of what is to come in the new heaven and the new earth. It's a brilliant picture of Jesus for us on Christmas Eve. To understand that the baby born in the manger is the king on Zion's holy hill. That those little hands that Mary held now hold a scepter of authority as he rules the nations and he saves his people. A child born to a lowly carpenter's family now has an army of servants doing his work in the world, fighting Satan and evil and death itself with the weapons of light that he has given us. Jesus is the king. We are his people. Yahweh has announced it. And one day, verse 1 will come to pass. This king who came in humility in his first advent will return in power in his second advent. We see this in verses 5 through 7. In verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 110, it's corresponding to everything in the first stanza of the psalm. So for example, in verse 1, the enemies of the king will be under his feet. They'll be his footstool. 
But in verse 7, after defeating his enemies, the victorious king will drink from the brook and he will lift his head. I mentioned Psalm 2 a moment ago. In Psalm 2, any earthly king who will not bow the knee and pay homage to the Messiah will perish in the way. But when the Messiah returns, he will not perish by the way. He will drink from the brook by the way. He will be strong. He will be alive. He will be like a man who has been refreshed. In verse 2, we see that the Messiah is granted authority. In verse 6, he's executing the authority, is he not? He's judging the nations. It's strong language here, filling, filling the nations with the corpses or the bodies of his enemies. Revelation 19, verse 21, speaks on this. It says, The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I know it's Christmas Eve, but this is the reality of what will become of those who stand opposed to the authority of Jesus Christ, and sometimes on Christmas Eve, we need to be woken up. I've been watching a Christmas carol all weekend, every version I can get my hands on, it's been kind of going through them on my iPad, Patrick Stewart and Muppet Christmas Carol and all of them, before old Ebenezer could get himself together, well, he had to be scared by Marley, didn't he? We have to be confronted with the reality of Jesus' return and the judgment that will come for those who oppose him. It wakes us up to our sin. It wakes us up to our opposition to God. It beckons us to surrender to him and to stop fighting him. The baby of Bethlehem is the judge of all the earth. You can't just relegate him to the manger. You can't relegate him to his first advent. He is coming again and when he comes it will be a day of power. Scriptures here say that he will shatter the chiefs. And if you have a footnote in your Bible, you might notice down there in the very small writing it says, or the head. And that's actually more literal to the original Hebrew this was written in. See, all the raging nations, all the evil kings that oppose the Lord at this hour on this Christmas Eve, and all who have done it throughout history, they do not do so purely of their own accord. There's something more evil behind them. It is the God of this world, the lowercase g God of this world, as the Apostle Paul calls him. Satan himself. And he hates Jesus. And he wants his throne. He'll never get it. But he's been chasing it for centuries and centuries. And when the Lord returns, he will shatter the chiefs who rival him, but he will also be stepping on the head who is behind all of those chiefs that oppose him. And this was promised from the very beginning. Adam and Eve disobey God in the garden, and sin and death enters into the world. It's one of the the darkest chapters of the Bible when you read it, but in the midst of it, there is hope, there's a promise where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God says to Satan from the beginning, one is going to come from Eve's line and he will stomp on your head. He will give you the fatal blow. This is him. It's Jesus who will shatter the chiefs and in the process he will shatter the head. And then you have verse 3 corresponding with verse 5. In verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of power. Verse 5, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. 
The day of his wrath and the day of his power are the same day. This is when the Lord who is at the right hand of Yahweh will get up, he will descend, and he will establish his rule on earth in perfection forever. That's announcement number one. Then you have a second announcement in the psalm. It comes in verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yahweh swears, God makes an oath. When God is making oaths, we ought to listen up. Because he is not like earthly fathers. Earthly fathers who are sinners sometimes make promises and make oaths that they end up breaking. It's not a good thing, but it happens because we're imperfect. But God is the father of lights. There's no shadow of turning in him. He is perfect. So when he promises something, he comes through on that promise. And here he is swearing about this Messiah, swearing about Adonai, saying that he will be a priest forever, for all of the ages, in the order of Melchizedek. Now, you might be going, excuse me, who? Melchizedek? Melchizedek is an interesting biblical character. Maybe you've never heard of him. He's fairly mysterious. He's obscure. He's only mentioned in the Bible a handful of times. His name means king of righteousness, which was a fitting name for a man who was not just a king, but was a priest. Our first introduction to him is in Genesis 14, where he is identified as the king of Salem, a priest of the Most High God. And so again, Melchizedek is a king priest, important for us to remember. Now, when you read that chapter of Genesis, Abram, the father of the Jewish people, and the father of all those who have faith, Abram and his trained army go to war with these pirate kings. It's very exciting stuff when you read it. These pirate kings have gone and they've taken all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and they have carried off his nephew Lot. And Abram doesn't sit back and take this lightly. He's a warrior. And so he and his army go out against these pirate kings and they win. And then Melchizedek, who also is a king, comes to Abram and they celebrate the victory. And what does Abram do? He offers a tithe to Melchizedek, this king priest. And then Melchizedek blesses Abram. And it's kind of jarring when you read this because from Genesis 12 on, Abram is without a doubt the most prominent figure of the book of Genesis. It's really about him and the covenant that God makes with him and his family. And yet it's clear as you're reading Genesis 14 that Abram is actually inferior to Melchizedek. He brings a tithe to Melchizedek. And then when Melchizedek blesses him, he receives that blessing from him, it it shows that he needed that blessing from the priest. And so we're dealing with a priest who is superior, even the father Abraham, who was a sort of king priest himself. The other important thing about Melchizedek is that he is not part of the priesthood of Aaron. The priesthood of Aaron The Levitical priesthood, that's the main line of priesthood in the Old Covenant. But he's not a part of that. Of course not. He actually predates it. And this is key because when it comes to the line of priests that came from Aaron, it went on for generations and generations. When a priest died, there was another one to to come into the line. 
And the reason this is so important for our understanding of Psalm 110 is that the New Testament tells us that Jesus is a great high priest. That he has offered himself as the atonement from our sins, but he is not from the Levitical line. Jesus is not a priest from the priesthood of Aaron. Instead, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is from the line of Melchizedek. This becomes even more evident, the author of Hebrews says, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek in Genesis 14 seemingly appears out of nowhere. It's like he has no beginning. And then he just goes away, but his end is never mentioned. And now one like him has come. A superior high priest who has no beginning and who has no end. A superior high priest who is resurrected and who has ascended and has an indestructible life. A one of a kind high priest that the greatest of saints bring free will offerings to. A unique great high priest who blesses those that serve the Lord in righteousness. This is Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah. He stands alone, coming from the line of Melchizedek as the great high priest of our souls. This Jesus that was born in Bethlehem lived a perfect spotless life and did what no other priest could do. Not even Melchizedek. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sins. He didn't come to the altar and put another lamb on it. He laid himself on the altar and he poured out his life's blood. Despite the fact that he was perfect. It should have been Michael Howard. right? It it, it should have been me to die for my sin. But he stepped in and died for me. He stepped in and died for you. He was bruised by the Father on Calvary's cross so that we would not be crushed by the wrath of God in judgment. So that our corpses would not fill the nations. Yahweh's Adonai, the great and superior high priest, bridged the gap between God and man by stretching out his own body as the lamb who was slain. And now anyone who trusts in his atoning death to cover their sins, will be saved down to the uttermost, to the very core of your soul. Again, we go to Hebrews 7, where the author says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is not just another Levitical mediator from Aaron's line. One who will die and then another will take his place. Not at all. He's a one of a kind high priest who brings us near to God and then ever lives to keep us near to God. Back to this word for the day, anticipation. There is a tension of anticipation in Psalm 110. 
There's anticipation in the scriptures, and there should also be anticipation in our souls. And that anticipation is centered on the king priest, revealed here in this psalm. The anticipation comes from this expectation that there is one who can both rule and avenge, while also being a redeemer and an advocate. He can rule the nations while also representing God to man and man to God. The scriptures, first of all, anticipated that a king priest would come. One of the reasons Psalm 110 is so often quoted by the New Testament writers is that they read the Old Testament and they would see that the scriptures themselves were pointing toward the fulfillment of this passage in Christ. They read the law, they read the prophets, they read the history books, and the New Testament writers said this Jesus... This king priest, the entire old covenant, was pulsating with anticipation of his arrival. There are all these types and shadows and covenants and prophecies, and they're all pointing to him. Now, we can spend a long time talking about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, and, and I believe we will spend eternity rejoicing over it, but this morning, I just want to track this idea of the king priest for a moment. If you've walked in here today and you don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, I want to challenge you on that right now and show you the richness of it. Show you how it tells one story, despite the fact that it's written in multiple language, languages, written on multiple continents over a period of 1,500 years. Some of it's written by kings, some of it's written by blue-collar fishermen. And yet there is one message. There is one thread that runs through the whole thing. The scriptures anticipate the king priest to come. It starts with God creating the world in six days. And on the sixth day, he creates man and the animals for man to rule over. He creates Adam. And as he creates Adam, he commissions him. We read Genesis 1.28 earlier where God says that Adam is to have dominion. Right? That's king language. Dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he's saying, hey Adam, you go be a king in this garden, son. And then in Genesis 2, Adam has another job in the garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You might say, well, so what? Work it and keep it, right? He's going to do some yard work. It's bigger than that. That language of work it and keep it. It's the same language used to describe the work of the priests of Aaron, the Levitical priests in the temple. Meaning God is saying, you're not just a king in this garden, Adam, you are also a priest in this garden. So God makes Adam a king priest to rule the garden, to work it, to keep it. But what we know is that Adam fails in this task. Do not eat from the, knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do... You will surely die. You can have all the other trees of the garden. Thousands and thousands of trees. But you can't eat from this one tree. And Adam breaks this commandment and he breaks covenant with God. He sins. And when he does this, death enters into the world. It's not a part of God's original design. If you've ever sat at a funeral and thought, this is not natural, I don't like this, my soul grates against this moment, then there's a reason for that. It's because death is not a natural part of life. It is a distortion that has been brought into the world by sin. 
And so this happens, and you're reading the Bible, and you're left wondering, well, listen, if Adam was going to rule the world in God's place as his vice-regent, as his representative, and he failed, well, who's going to do that now? Who's going to rule the world in peace and end the chaos of sinful creation? And if Adam was going to be a priest who works and keeps the garden, and he was going to represent humanity before God, and God before humanity, well then who will do that now? Who's going to be the king priest who rules the world and represents God in the way that the Lord intended? Fast forward to Genesis 12. We meet Abram. I mentioned earlier, Abram has an army, he's going out to war, he's conquering kings, he's meeting with an alliance of other kings, it's kingly activity. So Abram's a sort of king. Genesis also shows Abram going around building altars to the Lord, praying on behalf of others, standing in the gap and intercessing for them, interceding for them. He receives a priestly blessing from Melchizedek, that's priestly activity. So you're reading, you're like, all right, maybe we've got our man. Maybe Abram is the king priest that Adam failed to be. Is Abram the one who can rule the nations and intercede for God's people? And then you keep reading and you're like, well, he's a great man, but he can't be that man because he's not going to do it forever. He's got an expiration date and he certainly wasn't perfect. On more than one occasion, he puts his wife in harm's way to protect his own behind. I'll just leave it at that since we've got the kids in the room this morning. Go and read the story for yourself. It's, it's, it's not great for our, our boy Abraham. So he can't be the one. Then you get to Judges 6, you meet this guy Gideon. One of the judges who leads Israel after coming into the promised land after the generations of Moses and Joshua. And Midian is oppressing Israel. And so God has Gideon lead a troop of warriors to destroy them. It's much like Abram in Genesis 14. And after the victory, the people cry out for Gideon to be their ruler. And for his children and his grandchildren to be their ruler. And you're like, all right, is this him? Is it Gideon? Is he the king? Is he the new and better Adam who can rule in God's place? Well, Gideon refuses the crown, but he's still adorned as this great leader and ruler. However... He's no great priest. He makes an ephod of gold, and it becomes an idol for all of Israel. The ephod is an upper body garment that was supposed to be worn by the high priest as a symbol of holiness, as he represented God to the people. Gideon took this symbol of holiness, and he makes an idol out of it. And Israel plays the harlot. And as soon as he dies, the Bible says their sin goes deeper and further, and they start bowing down to the idols of of Baal, a false god. So Gideon's not our guy, great man who did not finish well. He is not the king priest to undo Adam's curse. Well, what about David? How about King David, the one who wrote this psalm? We know he's a king, greatest one Israel ever had, Michael Jordan of kings. Then in 2 Samuel 24, he's building an altar, he's sacrificing burnt offerings, priestly activity. All right, is David the king priest the scriptures have been waiting for? Well, Miss Kim made an allusion to the sad story of Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel, David commits adultery with her, then has her husband killed by sending him on a kamikaze mission. 
And we have David here in Psalm 110 recognizing there's somebody greater than him to come that is his master. It's not David. Well, what about his son Solomon? He's a powerful guy. He's the king who built the temple, right? Kingly, priestly. Nope, he was an adulterer and an idolater. He took many wives and then he worshipped the gods that those foreign wives brought into his home. In every one of these men, you get a shadow of the king priests as the scriptures are anticipating a new Adam. You get types of king priests who resemble something of what God commissioned Adam to be, but these are all sinful men who die like Adam. And then we have Jesus. The king from the order of Melchizedek, one of a kind, unique. Unlike Abram, unlike Gideon, unlike David, unlike Solomon, he does not soil his priestly robes. He lives a perfect life. And unlike those men, he did not need a bull or a goat to offer as a symbol of a coming Messiah. He put his own spotless life on the altar of the cross. And unlike those men, he died but rose again. He did not stay dead. He conquered death and ascended to the right hand of the Father, taking his rightful place as Adonai, as Lord. Which is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess. You go, well, what is this name that's above every name? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Just as we hear him called in Psalm 110. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the king priest that the types and the shadows of the scriptures were waiting for and anticipating coming. He is the second Adam. He did not fail in his covenant with God the way the first Adam did. And now he rules and intercedes and he will do it forever. And this is good news of great joy for the human soul. Like Abram and like Gideon, we are sinners. Like David and like Solomon, we are adulterers and idolaters. We do not love God the way that we should. We do not love our neighbors the way that we should. We do not do what we ought to do. We do things we ought not to do. The Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin separates us from God. And more than that, it puts us at odds with him from birth. And it makes us enemies of him. We need someone to reconcile us back to our creator. And this is exactly what Jesus, the great high priest, the great king came to do. He died in our place. He took our punishment. It is the most magnificent gift ever given in this act of sacrificial love. He rose from the grave On Easter Sunday, Christmas and Easter go hand in hand. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He is Lord. And we must respond to Him as such. We must repent of our sin. Meaning we agree with God that the sin that saw our high priest slaughtered at Calvary, we must agree with God that that sin is evil. And to turn away from it, intending to do it no more, 
and, and not just that, but as we turn from sin, we're turning toward Jesus. Trusting in his death on the cross to save us from our sin. It's, there's no work you can do. We watched Home Alone 2 last night. I, my favorite two Christmas movies, one and two. Home Alone 2, maybe the best sequel ever made of any movie ever, other than Empire Strikes Back. And we're watching it, and the pigeon lady preaches a damning message to Kevin. Oh, Kevin, don't you know that good deeds erase bad ones? No, that's not true. That's not true. I can't walk into a courtroom and say, well, listen, judge, I know that uh, I, I've been speeding everywhere I've been going and, and not paying the fines, and, and, and I pretty much do whatever I do when I'm driving my car, but have you looked at the charity that I give? Have you looked at the money that I give to charity? Have you looked at the money I give to the church? The judge is going to say, I don't care. There is a law that must be upheld. There is justice that must be done. Whatever else you've done, this must be dealt with. And so I hate to tell you that the pigeon lady is not right, but she isn't. You cannot erase your bad deeds with good deeds. Justice must be carried out. And at the cross, it was carried out for you in your place so that it wouldn't be you who stands before God's law condemned. Jesus volunteered to be condemned in your place so turn from your sin and trust in that saving work he has done for you and say there's no good I can do but I trust in the good that you have done and then receive the blessings of the king priest forever but also be warned on this Christmas Eve just as old Ebenezer Scrooge was warned by the ghost that haunted him those who reject Christ as the priest have no reconciliation with God. And when the king returns, his foot will be on the neck of those who are still opposing the maker of all things. And then it will be too late. I want to ask the band to return now to lead us in a final song. But as they do, I want to tell you that today is a day for mercy. God resists the proud, the Bible tells us. So if you're proud against them, I don't need you, God. I don't believe in you, God. I reject you, God. He resists you. But if you come to him and say, God, I need you. I can't save myself. I have poverty in my soul. I'm broken. There's no good I can offer you. But I'm turning away from the sin that saw your son killed on the cross, my sin, my horrible sin, I'm turning away from it and I'm coming to you and I'm throwing the whole weight of my soul upon Jesus. It's just the priest king. He's my only hope. The Bible says God gives grace to the humble. Undeserved love he will pour out on those who humble themselves before him and say, God, I need you. And so I implore you this morning to humble yourself before the infant king. He's the one your weary soul has been waiting on. He is the one the Scriptures were waiting on. He's the one David was waiting on. And He has come. And He has lived and He has died and He has conquered. He is the King Priest announced and anointed. Turn to Him this Christmas Eve. 
and he will bring you back to God, and he will give you the kingdom. We will be around after the service, myself and Pastor Ben. If you need to know the Lord Jesus, if you've heard this message today, or you're like, man, I don't know if I'm ready to be a Christian, but I sure would like to start going to church, please come and talk to us. I also want all of our active deacons and their wives, just, just raise your hands right now. If you just look around, you may know some of these folks. They can all talk to you and tell you about how to be a part of this church, and they can also talk to you and tell you about how to believe in the gospel and how to become a Christian. And so I just encourage you this morning to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can also email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. We would be happy to get back in touch with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us in Christ. We thank you so much for the king priest that you have given. He has come and he will come again. I pray, Father, that we would not play games on this Christmas Eve with our souls. God, we never know if this is going to be the last Christmas we would even have because maybe you would come again in 2024 or maybe our number would be up. We would have no more days to live. And Father, we would go and stand before your throne. We never know. Life is precious and life is fragile. I pray, Father, that of all days, we would recognize it on this day, a day where we're thinking about family, we're thinking about Jesus, we're thinking about joy and peace and hope. And I pray, Father, that if there are souls that are lost and that are in great need this morning, they would turn to the grace of your Son and be saved and find mercy there, which you have stored up in abundance, ready to pour out on them. For those in this room that already know you, God, but maybe this year they have just been living like an atheist. They've been living out in the wilderness. They have forgotten their first love. Call them home. Call them back to you, Lord. That they would commit themselves again to you, commit themselves again to your church and to the cause of spreading the gospel around this world. And Father, for those that are walking with you this morning and are experiencing joy right now in their relationship with you, I pray that they would continue to do that and they would take this good news and they would spread it like gospel seed throughout this world in 2024 and even over the next couple of days as they gather with friends and family. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Psalm 110 and we thank you for the Lord of Advent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with us to sing as we respond to the Lord of Advent. <laughs> 